0: Hey, creative, if you love the show and it has meant a lot to you, could you do me a favor? Would you share it with somebody that you care about? Your friend, your mom, your lover, whoever it is, because podcasts really are spread person to person. And I don't know about you, but the ultimate influencers in my life are my friends and family. So if all of you could share the podcast with just one person it would make a massive difference in our creative community, grow it, and we can all help support and lift each other up and get toward our dreams even faster. So please, if you have time today and you feel so compelled, share the show with a friend. Oh, also, if you have time, feel free to like, pop on over to Apple and leave it a rating and review and a rating on Spotify. Okay. Love you. Are you someone who struggles to take chances on yourself and your dreams? Are you always looking for practical tips on how to kickstart your creative journey and just how to get out of your own way? Well, today's guest has great, no-nonsense advice on how to get past perfectionism, take a chance on yourself, and how to just make adulting in general a little bit easier. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren Lagrasso. I'm Lauren Lagrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. And this show is meant to give you tools to trust. Love and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today's guest is Sarah Knight. She's a New York Times bestselling author, hit podcaster, and in demand public speaker. I first met her when I produced her show, No Fucks Given Podcast, which hit number one on the Apple Education charts. Thank you very much. It is truly a fantastic show and guide. It helped me so much. And you should check it out when you're done with this episode. But besides thinking Sarah is awesome and having previously worked with her, I wanted to have her on because her story is quite literally one of unleashing her inner creative. She spent years climbing the corporate ladder and made a wildly successful career for herself in book publishing. But over time, she grew unhappy with the corporate politics, the early mornings, the anxiety of her job. So she quit and went freelance. Within months of taking that leap, She had the idea for her first book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, which went on to become a New York Times bestseller. This is the power of what can happen when you unleash. Today, she's here to talk about her new book, Grow the Fuck Up, which gives great actionable tips about adulting and just how to be an overall better functioning person. Also, if you haven't noticed, we're going to say the F word a lot today. I'm assuming if you've been here for a while, that doesn't bother you. But if it does, you've been warned. So, Besides hearing the F-word a lot from today's chat, you will learn and you will hear how to take risks when you're risk adverse, some tips for taking the leap and in transitioning into freelance work, how to implement mind-calming tactics into your routine, tips on how to deal with anxiety, how to do a life inventory, and so much more. Okay, now here she is, Sarah Knight. Sarah <music> Knight. Sarah, I'm so happy to be with you. I had the pleasure of working with you, producing your incredible hit podcast, No Fucks Given Podcast. I miss it so much. It was a Bible and such an incredible resource. And now you're here because we're going to talk about your new book, Grow the Fuck Up, which I love. Thank you. Thank you
1: for having me.
0: Oh my gosh, my pleasure. So I kind of want to go to the origin of Sarah Knight. Like you give so much amazing advice, but you will have a rich story of your own, which makes you a great person to take advice from because you've really been through it in a way that I feel like few people who give advice have. You've had kind of so many different journeys and so many different lives within this one life. But to go back all the way to the beginning, because I think... A lot of our creative journey does start with the inner child.
1: I'm so curious, what did you want to be growing up? Well, I wanted to be a writer or I wanted to be a hairdresser depending on the day. So I think that my husband was very grateful for my hairdressing proclivities during the pandemic, because I did cut his hair for almost two years. And I did a very nice job of it. He said it's a great combination of somebody who's artistic, but also a bit OCD. But I did say from a young age that I wanted to be a writer. And then I took a detour through some related careers and then wound up where I am today. So I guess young me had her eye on the ball. Oh, yeah, big time. And she's achieved both dreams. (laughs)
0: I thought maybe that that was the case. So I'm curious because so many of us who are in creative industries do kind of take not a sidestep, but a related career, something that's like just on the edge of what we want to do, or even sometimes looking in on what we want to do. I know you ended up in publishing for 15 years. How was it that you ended up going in that direction versus just pursuing writing right out of the gate?
1: So a couple of things. One was that I'm not sure that I ever thought I was Good enough. Like mm. I majored in English at Harvard. I've been a lifelong reader. I have seen great writing. And I think that there was always something in the back of my head that was like, well, it's all well and good to say you want to be a writer, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can be a writer. And dueling with that is the fact that, you know, I've always valued stability. And in my mind, I was like, the goal is not to potentially be a starving artist, the goal is to, like, have a day job and then figure out the art part. And I'm not sure that I necessarily thought that, like, specifically in my head, but I just always thought, like, I graduated from high school, I went to college, and when I left college, I actually had a a brief flirtation with the idea of going into theater because... I did a lot of work with set design and props building and scenic art and stuff when I was in college, and I really, really liked it. But ultimately, the sort of writing bug won out, and I thought, okay, well, I'll work in publishing. I'll work at a magazine. I'll work for a literary agent, you know, book publisher, whatever. And I was just on the path of graduating from college and start applying to jobs, and this was in the summer of 2000 because I am an elderly lady. And I cast a really wide net. And actually, the first job I wound up getting was as a writer at a comedy website. So that was actually kind of really great because I never got back to my comedic roots until I started writing my books, which are intended to be quite funny in addition to being practical. So it's sort of interesting that that was actually my literal first job out of college.
0: So you have this comedy website job where you're actually writing, you're doing the thing. How is it then that you moved into publishing?
1: people who were around in the year 2000 might remember the economic bust, where all of the websites that had received so much funding to go do amazing, wonderful things in uh, post-Y2K ran out of money. And so we all got laid off. I had only been working there for three months, which was not a full fiscal quarter in New York City. So I learned that I did not qualify for unemployment. I very much hope that those laws have changed by now. But 22 years ago, they left me pretty high and dry. And of course, I had spent several months Pounding the pavement to get that job. I had just settled in. I was having the time of my life. I thought, well, this is it. I've got a 401k. I've got a dartboard in the office. I'm writing jokes all day. I'm hanging out with fascinating, really funny people. I'm in my early 20s. Does it get any better than this? And then we all got laid off and we took our little cardboard boxes of stuff and left the building and I had to start over again. So, you know, it was like, okay, what's next? And I went back to it was like hotjobs.com and I don't think Monster was around yet. Media Bistro was like a Ooh, job site. Sounds refreshing. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, you know, I was faxing my resume to a bunch of different places. There was one day when I, I was living in an apartment with four roommates on the Upper East Side in New York City, very tiny apartment, four people, three of them were boys. And I went to Kinko's and I had like five different resume cover letters for five different jobs. And I handed it over and I just watched the guy send the one cover letter to all five of the things. And I was like, no. <laughs> like Ah! So anyway, long story short, there was a lot more job hunting that went on. And I wound up working at a bookstore. It was a Shakespeare and Company on 68th and Lexington, I believe, for a few months during the like school rush where they sold all textbooks to hunter college students. So I did that. And I finally got my next job, which was with a literary agent. And so I did that for a year and then eventually got into actual book publishing on the editorial side. Wow. So
0: much to break down. Something I'm really curious about, because you have spoken about how you would have considered yourself and maybe still do in some regards risk adverse. And you ended up, I mean, now we know, taking this huge leap of faith, learning to not give a fuck what people think of you and just go for what was on your heart. But I'm curious at that time, that economic downturn, how do you think that affected your brain, the way you viewed security, the way you viewed taking the leap for yourself even down the road? What was the impact of that? And how did you shed that trauma of having no control over your life?
1: You know, it was really traumatic. I always started out as a person who, like I said, valued stability and security. You know, we didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up and I was Very much aware of sort of what we had, what we didn't have, what I wanted, what was possible, and just kind of had an ingrained like fear of that. And then to graduate from college with all of this debt and move to New York City, the most expensive or at least one of the top three most expensive cities in the world, and like finally get a job and lose it. And then for 9 11 to happen pretty soon off of that, like it was a really rough time to be a 21 or 22 year old in New York in my industry. And me personally, I didn't take it very well. So I definitely think that that had lasting implications, and I remember when I was finally had been gainfully employed for several years at a major publisher, and there was another big economic downturn. I want to say it was two thousand seven or two thousand eight, and like I was walking to work from the subway in the morning, and like the gap was boarding up the windows, and like all of these oh pharmacies were out of business and all this stuff, and I was like, "Oh God, it's happening again," and I think you really do feel that, and what. That turned into, I'm sure for people across all kinds of industries, was 2000, 2003, 2008 consolidation. And so I was able to never get laid off again, but I also was doing the work of three people instead of one, because that's how the companies that I was working for handled it. So that is what then contributed to the burnout that made me so panicked and depressed that I had to take that leap of faith. I had to take that what I felt was a huge risk at the time at that 15-year point in my career as an editor and leave it all behind. Because like even though I had the stability and I had the success and I was finally making pretty good money, really good money if you don't live in New York City, but pretty yeah. good money if you're living in New York, I was done. I was so burned out. This is not unique to me. Like I think a lot of people were just pulling A lot of weight for a long time. You know, that's not conducive to my mental health, certainly. And so I got really desperate and I had to do some really hardcore self assessment and realize like it's. job. It's the corporate world. It's the worrying about what your supervisor thinks. It's the not being able to have autonomy, not being able to take your ideas all the way to fruition. Everything gets sent to committee. That part of it, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I was working incredibly long days and every night and all weekend doing the good part, editing author's books, discovering new voices. That was the fun part, but the eight hours in the office were not the fun part. So that was sort of where I was at in 2014 when I made the decision to leave and it took a year to work up to that both financially and psychologically. And then I
0: quit my job in 2015. I mean, part of why I started the show is because of stories like this, right? I mean, we're all born creative. We all have creativity inside of us. And then somewhere along the way, either something traumatic happens or we're given messaging that we can't do it and we shut down. And then things start happening like anxiety, depression, getting sick. And we're like, oh, why is this happening? Well, it's because we've repressed an entire life within ourselves and are subjecting ourselves to an environment that isn't healthy for us. So I'm curious, during this time when you started building up to like, I have to get out of here, what were the signs physically, mentally, emotionally that you were not in the right place and you had to start making plans to make that leap?
1: The biggest one that was the biggest wake up call was when I had my first panic attack. It's possible that that wasn't actually my first panic attack, but now I think maybe I'd had them before, but at my Midtown Manhattan office building. And you know I'd woken up that morning, I said to my husband, I oh, don't feel really well. I feel a little nauseous. I feel a little short of breath, but it was, I had to go in. It was a work day and I just had stuff to do. And so I got on the subway and I kept feeling sick and I kept feeling kind of weird and jittery. And all these thoughts ran through my head. Like, am I coming down with something B? Like, is my bra too tight? Is that why I can't (laughs) breathe? You know? And like, oh God, am I sick? Like, is this morning sickness? Am I pregnant? Hopefully not. And so I like hustled from the subway up to my office directly to the ladies' room Nothing happened, still feeling sick, go back into my office, shut the door, email my husband, still not feeling well, and then fast forward a few more minutes and I just started seeing like black spots in my vision and I was hyperventilating and I kind of staggered into the doorway and I said to this girl who's sitting outside like, hey Kate, there's something seriously wrong with me, like can you call my husband and then I just passed out. And I later learned from the nice nurse who was on site at the building. I worked at Random House at the time and there was a corporate nurse. And she was like, oh, well, you know, how old are you and what's your life like? And I was like, oh, yeah, I got planned a wedding. I got married. I got this big new job. You know, I moved. I bought an apartment. Like, and she was like, so this is probably a panic attack and this happened to my daughter too. And I was like, what? This is now something I have to deal with? So deal with it, I did. And, uh, you know, not very well at first. And then I started listening to people and professionals and trying different things to get back to where I needed to be. But it took me like years after that. That was another sort of five years before the, okay, I really have to get out of this business. Like I have to do something different. So the progression was painful and slow. And what I've been trying to do with my books this whole time in one way or another is kind of help people not have to get to that slow and painful (laughs) moment of desperation like I did and maybe have some strategies to avoid that along the way.
0: One thing you talk about is the rebirth you had to have once you left the career because you had spent 15 years building up this career, building up notoriety in this industry, and then you took the leap and you went toward freelance work. I mean, you had to let go of that and even like grieve the loss of that identity How did you do that? And what are your tips for someone who is going through a similar reinvention right now?
1: It was really hard. I mean, like I said, I spent a year having decided, okay, I'm going to leave this career behind. And every day for 365 days, I put a little money from my checking into my savings account and I crossed off a box and on a chart on my refrigerator. I both sort of physically and financially prepped and emotionally and psychologically prepped. And I needed that whole year to do all of that. Like it was really difficult to say this is a career that I always thought was kind of going to be it for me. Like I was going to become a publisher and have my own imprint and retire at the top of the heap. I'd just been such a hustler and I had made it so much of my identity, not only this career, but being a success in this career, being a big mouth in this career, that to turn away from it felt like a failure. It felt like there was something wrong with me for not wanting it anymore. I felt like I was letting people down, my authors, my boss. I felt like I wasn't going to be me anymore. And actually, I don't even remember if I talked about this on my No Fucks Given podcast. But at some point, I walked into the room and I said to my husband, like, I feel like I'm dying. I just feel like I'm dying physically. And he was like, yeah, well, I'm not surprised because you're basically murdering the Sarah Knight that you have been for the last 15 years. And so it's painful and it feels like death." And I was like, you're very perceptive. And so it was really terrible and I'm here to tell people that it's not you if you're going through this and you're feeling really awful about it and you're second guessing yourself and you're feeling like physically ill, like that's normal. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And what I basically did, and this is what works for me, I put one foot in front of the other small, manageable steps toward my goal and just really tried not to become overwhelmed by the big picture because I am a planner. I do look seven moves down the chessboard and that can be really useful for a lot of aspects of my life, but it is not good for anxiety and it is not good to sort of just become – like, I needed to put on blinders, really, and just focus on one small thing. So, for example, I knew I was going to go freelance. I knew I needed to save that money. I had that plan. But I also was designing a freelance website, you know, a little bit at a time and putting together a logo for Sarah Knight Books, editorial services, you know, and I was making spreadsheets of all of the literary agents and all of their contact information that I was going to reach out to the day after I turned in my resignation to say, hi, I'm now available for freelance work. And so each one of those little pieces was like a task that I could accomplish. It was like a realistic small piece of the whole. And it also helped me from getting totally overwhelmed by the enormity of the change that I was making. For me, that's what works. It might not work for everybody, but I think it helped it helped me like literally achieve each goal because I wasn't overwhelmed and it also helped keep my anxiety as in check as it was possible to keep during that big transition time. It's great advice. So you didn't actually
0: get any of your clients ahead of time. You just made plans to start getting clients.
1: Yeah, because I was terrified that if I let people know that I was planning on doing this, that I would be that somehow in trouble with my boss, like basically, I knew I was going to give two weeks notice. So once I gave notice, I had a couple of weeks that it was okay for me to tell people what my plans were. But I knew or at least felt that I knew that those two weeks wouldn't be enough to like get started on everything that I was going to need to do to become a successful freelancer. And of course, what I ended up doing was lining up way too many clients, because I was yeah. prepared and immediately had to start declining and i was like oh no like how am i going to like i can't believe i'm turning away work but i also did at that time i had a few friends who had left the industry either they'd been laid off or one of them i think went on maternity leave and then her job was not waiting for her when she got back which i also think is illegal
0: interesting <laughs>
1: And I was in touch with, you know, maybe three of them and said, hey, so I'm starting to get queries for stuff I can't take on because I just don't have the time. Like, is this something you'd be interested in? And maybe should we set up some kind of formal sharing something? And that was seven years ago. And now we're all part of this freelancers Google group that has got at least has 100 people in it that not only do editorial work, ghostwriting, you know, copy editing, proofreading, translation, and really have created all these substantial documents like legal documents to help us all with contracts that we are putting out for our work and things like that. So it almost, it was like, I got to be in charge finally (laughs) of how I wanted to like use my days and my creative brain and my administrative brain. And now we have this like huge network of people who were all working at Big Five Publishers anywhere between two and seven years ago and have all left and are all doing really, really well. So that is another – whatever the opposite of a cautionary tale is, an inspirational tale for anybody who feels like this is the beginning of something really hard or they feel alone. Like it's possible to create a community of like-minded people who all kind of have shared goals and it's not the same as showing up to an office where you didn't do all that hiring and maybe you're not interested in being – socially or professionally connected to those people. Like these are people that we all kind of brought together on purpose. And that feels really good.
0: That's beautiful. And then, okay, so I know a few months after you started doing freelance, you get a book deal. Tell me about how this transpires. And also, I want to know this whole time when you were publishing, did you still have this flicker in your heart that like, I want to write a book. I'm a writer. I want to write. And how did that feel and then finally manifest into you getting this deal?
1: So while I was working, particularly when I was an assistant for a few years at the Scribner Imprint, my boss was a novelist himself. So he was a book editor and he wrote novels. I'm so grateful that I got to sort of watch the process of somebody doing that up close and personal for the five years that I worked for him. I didn't ever feel like I could do it. I didn't feel like there were enough hours in the day. I was absolutely amazed. And of course, he had me and I was a very good assistant, but he also had three children and a wife and a social life and everything. So I really don't know how he did it. I never felt like I could ever focus long enough – to produce any kind of long form quality work of my own. I was not somebody who was going to get up at 4am and write in the two hours before dawn. And I was not somebody who was capable of basically what I viewed then as abandoning my loyalty to my own authors whose works I was editing. Like I took that home with me and I did more of that at night and on the weekends. Like I didn't feel like I could say, well, today's for my novel. And so part of that was obviously me like pushing it off and being afraid and not wanting to fail and whatever. But part of it was also just like, I didn't have the time and I didn't have the brain space. But talk about unleashing your inner creative as it turns out when you walk away from a job or any kind of life situation, perhaps a long-term relationship that was dragging you down into the depths of burnout and depression and panic and anxiety, and you have a little bit of time to regroup and start pursuing your life on the wavelength that you really want to pursue it on and where you can function at your best, you have these bursts of creative energy. So it's not surprising to me at all that after maybe two weeks of having left my job and starting working on some freelance projects, and then I had the Marie Kondo book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, that I was going to send to my mom because she really needs it, but I didn't because <laughs> that seemed passive aggressive. So I, d- I read it myself and I was like, I'm always looking for new ways to make my home look like Real Simple Magazine. And it had a lot of great advice in it for people who really need you know, physical organization help and decluttering help. I realized when I closed that little book that I had been doing all of the same things that Marie Kondo tells you to do for your stuff I had been doing it for my mind. Like I had been mentally decluttering. I had been getting rid of things that did not bring me joy. I had been getting rid of stuff that didn't serve me. I had really been taking an inventory the same way she has you take an inventory of the stuff that's collected in your closet or your garage or your kid's playroom. I had been taking an inventory of all the obligations and tasks and responsibilities and people and requests that were being put on me and saying like, no, no more. This isn't right. This doesn't feel good. I want to have more time, energy, and money to do these other things. And so I just was like, wouldn't it be funny? I was walking down the street, going to meet my husband for dinner in Brooklyn. Wouldn't it be funny if I wrote a parody book called The Life Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck? And we sat down at this little restaurant called Lulu and Poe. And I told him my idea and I was like, what do you think? And he's like, that sounds like a really good idea. I was like, yeah, I think if I got that proposal and it was good, I, probably bid on it as an editor. So this is kind of a weird story, but I went into the restroom at the restaurant and they had like a chalkboard and chalk in the wall in their bathroom. So I wrote, I just had a great book idea and I took a picture of it. And then I – proposed the book idea to this literary agent who's now a very good friend. She was a friend at the time. She's become a very, very good friend and she was like, yes, write me a proposal and I wrote a proposal and she sent it out and she sold it in a multi-publisher auction and I had one month to write it because they wanted to get it out in time for the like new year, new you. So this all happened between say August and December of 2015. We were also trying to pack up and we were trying to show and sell our apartment and pack everything up and sell off all our furniture so that we could move to the Dominican Republic where we live now because it wasn't just about one big life change. It turned (laughs) out that I was making multiple massive life changes at the same time. And then the book became a bestseller and I went back to that restaurant a couple of years later and I wrote on the wall and now it's a bestseller and I took a picture of that and then I have that little artifact. So actually that restaurant disappeared at some point after we moved out of Brooklyn and we were so sad to see it go because we loved it so much and we were just in New York a couple of months ago and I was scrolling on Resy like what's open in the neighborhood right now and it said Lulu and Poe and I was like, what? they're back. And it turned out that they had opened like a pop-up during the pandemic and that had gotten really successful. And they had this little diner that was under a different name. And then they just had started like two weeks before that serving like the dinner menu of old. And so we went there and it was great. But unfortunately, a different location. So they don't have the chalkboard in the bathroom.
0: Drat. Because I was going to say, everybody needs to go there and manifest your dreams.
1: (laughs) Right. That is such a
0: beautiful story, Sarah. I mean, stories like that bring me to tears because... What an instantaneous sign that you made the right choice. Like, you took this chance on yourself. The creative gods just bring this idea through you. And then within weeks, it's out in the world. Wild. I've never heard you talk about spirituality. What is your viewpoint on that? Like, do you believe in magic?
1: (laughs) No, you know, for better or worse, I'm just an extraordinarily rational, pragmatic person. I think it's probably because I don't like things that I don't understand and that I can't explain. So there's a part of me that's kind of not really willing to go there and like put any kind of faith or stock in something that I can't explain and understand. But that is not to say that I don't think that it exists and that it is worthy of being a sort of guiding life principle for other people. But for me, I'm just a real kind of nuts and bolts, like what you see is what you get kind of gal.
0: Yeah. And honestly, the way you write your books and the tactics you use and the tips you use are kind of similar to spiritual practices. They're just very logical practices. I can see that. I was just curious because I was like, wow, that feels like you were in such a state of flow. But I wanted to ask you, too, because obviously we talked about anxiety. This is airing during Mental Health Awareness Month. I know you're a huge mental health advocate. I am as well. How has your anxiety and your mental health shifted and changed since you've made this life choice and really started going after what was on your heart?
1: I think that I still struggle. Certainly, I struggled enormously during 2020, 2021, just like existential crisis compounded by everything else that was happening in the world and not having an outlet for my writing because my brain was too fried to do any work. This was when I was working on the podcast with you and I would never have gotten through it without your inimitable guidance and support because that was like doing a brand new thing and I had to pretend like my brain was working for everybody. So that was like a real nadir. But aside from that, I think one of the things that's changed for the better is that I know what I'm dealing with now. And this is, like I said, if I talk about it, and lots of times I tell the story about, you know, is my bra too tight? Have I been poisoned? Am I having an aneurysm? You know, people are like, oh my God, I've thought that too. I'm like, actually, the answer is much simpler. It's anxiety. Yeah. And so now that I know what I'm dealing with, and I realize all those years that I spent just kind of like taking like painkillers for my terrible, terrible tension headaches that turned out to be anxiety related and just like burning the candle at both ends and just thinking that I was just a sickly person who kept having to cancel plans because my stomach wasn't feeling well, you know, now that I understand the root of a lot of that. I'm a lot better equipped to handle it and a lot better equipped to like head it off at the pass. So apart from real big dark times like we had in the thick of the pandemic, I've been doing really much, much better. But also even during that time, I think that one thing I've started to do in my I'll call it my middle age, is be willing to try new things. And I used Mm. to be very much in all aspects of my life like, no, I'm going to do it the way I know how to do it and the way I like doing it and the way I'm familiar with doing it. And like there isn't a better way. Like this is just the way and it's either going to work or it isn't. Whereas I started meditation and I started yoga and I started doing all this stuff that I just never thought I would do because I was like, You only got one life. You only got one brain. You got to take care of it. And if this is going to help, I should probably give it a shot. Spoiler, it did help. All of it.
0: (laughs) Big time. I mean, that meditation is such a huge one. And when you start to see the difference between, at least for me, when I don't start my day with that versus when I do, at least it gives you a chance,
1: you know? Yeah, totally. I feel that way about my, as I call it, my stupid fucking yoga that I've been doing for the last several months. (laughs) I forgot you called it that. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've had just had really bad back problems because of course I've been sitting around writing seven books in seven years and hunched over my laptop and my microphone and everything. I actually really like I miss it if I skip a day and I really have tried very, very hard not to skip any days. There's been a couple of hungover days where I just couldn't bear to do anything, let alone 45 minutes of yoga. But generally speaking, I kind of look forward to it. And it's not just because it's helping my back and everything, but also just like it's just time to myself where I'm counting, I'm breathing, I'm doing repetitions. It's sort of like meditating because I'm just not thinking about anything else. And it's a really good part of my day. And so I definitely feel like that's true, that like if you can get into some of these good habits. It's not really stupid fucking yoga anymore. It's I'm going to go do my yoga, but I'm happy about doing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Eventually it just converts to being fun fucking yoga. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to get into the new book, Grow the Fuck Up. I love saying it. I'm so glad you say fuck. Before we get into it, why do so many people have a problem with the word fuck when there are actual words out in the world that hurt people, but no one cares about those. They only
1: care about fuck and shit. Tell me yeah, what's happening you're preaching to the (laughs) choir here. All I will say is that there is a long history in the United States of America and perhaps elsewhere in the world of legislators ignoring the will of their own constituency. And I find that with the massive success of my books, I didn't sell three million copies around the world because people don't like the word fuck and don't like reading it. But the legislators, in this case, the media – who don't want me to come on their talk shows, and the bookstores who are like, we can't put that out there in front of little kids. They are frankly going against the will of the people because when the people see the books, they pick them up. And when the people read the books, they like them and they tell their friends. So I am just out here letting the CEOs of Barnes & Noble and the producers of The Drew Barrymore Show and Kelly Clarkson, your audience wants this. Maybe you should give it to them.
0: So- What is your creative process these days when you're writing? Do you outline? How does it come to be? Like from idea to it's out in the world, what does that look like?
1: So it's evolved a little bit over the course of all of the books, because like I said, that first one was I had written a proposal that was probably 30 or 40 pages long. So it was a pretty decent nonfiction book proposal, but they needed a full book in a month. And I was like, okay. I mean, I wrote that in a fugue state. I honestly don't remember any of it. After that, subsequently, when I was granted a little bit more time, I wouldn't say that I outline like – I have a very broad outline. Mm -hmm. Like I I break things down into kind of four or five major parts that I want to do. And one of those is just like an introductory part, like not literally an an introduction, but like a – basically like the toolkit that the rest of the book – sits on. And I've done this in every single book, and yet you'd be really surprised how many times I've gotten really far in the drafting of a book without having done that part and been like, why isn't this working? Like, why isn't it? Like, Sarah, just go back to your formula that works. <laughs> you know, because I'm always trying to, I'm trying to mix it up. I want to have some artistic integrity here. I don't want people to feel like they're getting the same old thing recycled in six different ways. I want to try new stuff. And sometimes I do quizzes and sometimes I do flowcharts and sometimes I do little funny kind of long form analogies about which chipmunk you are. It does work to have like a basic framework that I do every time. And so I finally am figuring that out for myself. But my process is really butt in the seat. Like I do it the same Mm. way that I saved that money to go freelance. I look at if I want to write a 55,000 word book, how many words can I reasonably write per day? Maybe 500 minimum, maybe 1,000 if I have a good day, occasionally a little bit more than that. Okay. So how many days is that? And when's my deadline? And kind of, so how many days this week do I need to have my butt in the seat and reach that word count? Because I am motivated by that kind of goal setting. Like I said, small, manageable parts of the whole. And then in terms of like the creativity, like as I'm sure you know, and everybody listening knows, it's not always Mm flowing. So I have little strategies for myself that I use when I'm not feeling like my books are very funny and I don't always feel funny. And I do a lot of like TK as a writer shorthand for like I'll fill this in later. So lots of times I'll get the cadence of a section down, but I'll just TK, TK, joke, TK, joke, TK, because I don't have the ability in the moment to come up with like a really snappy joke or like the exact right wording or the exact right example I want to use. So I just kind of get the, just like the rhythm down of the passage. And then I know that I have like one day of work where I could sit down and just like, Be funny. I imagine this is what writers do, like in writers' rooms when they go in to punch up a script. Like, you show up and you're like, all right, I'm feeling good today. I'm going (laughs) to write some jokes. And I've already done the like skeleton of a section. So then that day is all about just making it really pop. So that's how I handle it because I know that I'm not going to be my best creative self every day, even if I do have a word count to hit. And sometimes I go back and revise stuff that I already did and that's my work for the day. So it doesn't necessarily add to the word count, but it makes the subsequent draft, it works toward the end goal, which is a polished draft to send to my editors. And then that gets edited and rewritten two or three times before it goes to press.
0: And given your background in editing, I had someone named Ozan Varel on the show recently. He's awesome. And he just put out a book, too. And he talked about how he tries to separate ideation from evaluation. So he tries not to evaluate while he's ideating. Is that something you do or are you kind of editing as you write as well? Time for Diet Coke, right? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Da-da-da-da-da!
1: <laughs> I really need that.
0: Love what you love. Diet Coke. Get runway ready. A chance to win the ultimate shopping experience plus hundreds of
1: prizes curated by Kate Moss. Promo packs in store, 18 plus, T's and C's, visit code.co.uk slash break. It's really hard for me to do that. My husband is always harping on me and saying like, you can't edit while you're writing. Yeah. But I did this, you know, as a career for a decade and a half. And there's this part of me that's still a recovering perfectionist that doesn't want to put words on the page that aren't right. And it's really, really hard for me to just like move through and get the draft down without kind of second and third and fourth guessing myself. But at least much like with the anxiety, I'm aware of it. So I will realize sometimes that I am being my own worst enemy on a particular writing day because I am just kind of noodling and fiddling and just like beating myself up over something that I feel like isn't right when I could just say, put a pin in this, keep moving, get the rest of the draft down. Because I mean, it's very obvious to say, but like you can't edit a draft that you haven't written yet. It behooves me to keep going, but it is really hard for me to separate the two just because that was what I did. I mean, I edit books in my head that I'm reading for pleasure. So could have struck that line.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It makes sense, though. I mean, I do the same thing when I listen to podcasts. I'm like, oh, I would have cut that. I would have interjected this thing. Oh, I could hear that cut. It's normal when you spent that long doing something. What I love is that you talk about how, you know, you've always been called the anti-guru. You were named that by, oh, was it a publication overseas? Yeah, it was The Observer in the The UK. Observer. Okay. But in this book, you're bringing anti-guru energy And that's because you had a beautiful little nephew who was born over the pandemic, who I know who you dedicated the book to, who is a big inspiration for this. Can you explain, like, what is this auntie guru energy? Yeah. Like, what are you hoping that we feel when we read this book?
1: I am a child free by choice. I have never wanted kids. I haven't really felt that maternal urge at all. I don't particularly like children. And yet I write all of these books that are giving advice and that are teaching people life skills and that do kind of take on a little bit of a maternal cast to them because I'm just trying to be very helpful to you. But I'm also swearing at you and, and kind of giving <laughs> you a kick in the butt and like not putting up with your shit and like telling you like it is. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, like a year and a half ago when I had this idea, my brother and sister-in-law had just gotten pregnant with their first child. And so I was going to become a first-time aunt. And I was realizing, you know, I had all these great aunts growing up who were also child-free. Like, it's not really a surprise that I kind of turned into the person I did with the role models that I had. And I credit each of those aunts with teaching me very specific and very useful kind of life skills and emotional skills And in addition to what I got from my parents. So I just sort of thought like, Well, if I want to write a book that's kind of aimed at younger people, that's like giving them like advice on like how to go out there and be an adult in the world – Like I had all these cool aunties growing up and now I guess that's my goal is to like be a cool auntie. I want my nephew to be like, I have the coolest auntie. So, you know, it's not altruistic. It's, (laughs) It's all about me and how I feel. But then, you know, the book actually grew into something that I think is applicable to anybody at any stage of life who needs any help in being more mature and more responsible and more accountable, which are the three pillars of what I call the GTFU MO, the grow the fuck up MO. So I thought, well, Auntie Guru. Auntie guru, like has a certain ring to it. So I do basically present myself in the book as like, imagine that you're getting all of this information that your parents, teachers, coaches, grandparents, babysitters tried to give you growing up, but it's just a little bit more fun to hear it from a lady who says fuck on every page. And here we are.
0: You're not a normal aunt. You're a cool aunt. (laughs) Aunt, I should say.
1: My husband would say aunt because he grew up in the South, so. I grew up in the Midwest. In
0: Michigan, we say aunt, but I love aunt too. Um, And I love it, how it works with Auntie Guru. I mean, I love a pun. I love a pun. Who doesn't? <laughs> so, okay, you spoke about how it's good for everyone. And I totally agree because you have something that you talk about as the evolution of adulting. Starting with actual baby into big fucking baby into theoretical grown-up into actual grown-up. I actually listened to it because I really miss hearing your voice on the podcast. So I listened to your book. Highly recommend the audiobook. It feels like you're just talking with a great friend. Thank you. But there's some things that I'm definitely an actual grown up on. There's some things I'm definitely a theoretical grown up. And I'm ashamed to say there's maybe a couple things where I'm a big fucking baby. Can we go through and what all of these actually are and how to know what category or categories we're falling into? So...
1: Actual baby, that's the easiest one. Nobody listening right now is an actual baby. Or if they are, they don't know that they're an actual baby because they're an actual baby. So (laughs) what I try to do is like leave that as a baseline in the book so that I can remind you that there was a time in your life when you didn't know anything, you had to learn, like literal survival was at stake, you had to figure things out. And there was a time for people to be, you know, compassionate and empathetic with you and for you to make a bunch of mistakes and learn from them and then not do them again. And like – what you do with you know those learning experiences and those instructions and the good behavior that's modeled for you by the adults around you, and sometimes bad behavior that's modeled for you that you need to recognize as bad behavior, that's where you either become a big fucking baby who has had all the time in the world to learn all of this stuff and just doesn't care and isn't going to do it and has no interest in being a productive, trustworthy, dependable member of society, or you become... A theoretical adult, like you're there, you're an adult in age for sure, you've got adult responsibilities, you're holding down a job, maybe you've even got a family of your own, and you're willing to do better and to optimize all of this stuff and to make your life easier and more pleasant and make the lives of everyone around you easier and more pleasant by acting like an adult in all of the ways that I teach you in the book, but you're just not quite there yet. Theoretically, you're primed, but you just – you're not quite there, but you're willing. And then finally, you've got the total fucking grownups, and these are the people that have put it all together most of the time. None of us have put it together all of the time, but you have to take that willingness on the part of the theoretical adult, and then put it into action. It's not enough to just say, well, I'd like to do this better. You do have to put in the work, and putting in the work is where you become a total fucking grown-up. Even if you don't always succeed, that's where we want you to go, from being the actual baby who can't do anything to being the total fucking grown-up who not only knows why and how to do the things, but actually goes out there and tries to do them. I have a few
0: questions from that. One is you've talked a couple of times about being a recovering perfectionist. I think sometimes when people are falling into in some areas of their life, the theoretical grown up section, it's because they're afraid of what will happen if I try and I fail. If somebody's struggling with that right now, do you have any tips on how you've started to get over your perfectionism and just go for it or do the thing you've been afraid of or been putting off?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is a journey. I am as type A and ambitious and oldest child you know, as they come. I've really been struggling with perfectionism my whole life. I didn't know I was struggling with it for a while, but I actually wrote a lot about this in my book, You Do You, but I take out little bits of you know, talking about fear of failure and things like that and grow the fuck up as well. It's easier said than done, but you have to come to this knowledge that failure is just a thing that happens. Like, sometimes it's your fault because you did something wrong or you didn't do something well enough or whatever. And sometimes it's not your fault at all. It's just, you know, you've applied for a fellowship and there are a million qualified candidates and they just didn't pick you. And like you have to know that you're going to walk into pretty much every day or at least every week of your life, there's going to be a failure of some magnitude. And it could be just a little thing where like you like lose your favorite like necklace or something. And it's like, well, you know, you can't beat yourself up over it and you can't let it ruin your day, week, month, year, unless it's maybe like your grandmother's antique engagement ring or something. And then you should probably worry about that a little bit more. (laughs) But, you know, but then there's going to be things like jobs that you don't get or relationships that fall apart or, you know, you're going to bid on a house someday and you're not going to get it. They're disappointments, but they're not things that you should take personally. Mm -hmm. And when they are, when it's something that you have failed at because like you didn't study, for your LSATs. And you know what? You didn't get a very good score. And so it's going to be really hard for you to get into that law school that you were hoping to get into. Well, you learn from it. And this is what total fucking grownups do is they're willing to learn from their mistakes in hopes of not making them again. And so it is this cycle of like when I think about like my perfectionism and the issues that I've had in my life where I don't think I've ever been really afraid to do something that I might fail at. I mean, I talked about a career in writing as like, I just don't know if that's like feasible because like, I'm not a writer. Like these people are a writer. It wasn't really like, I don't want to try and fall on my face. It was more just like, I'm not sure that's possible. But other things that like I've had failures in my career that have kept me up at night, just books, like not my books, but like books that I edited that I just – I'd put so much blood, sweat, and tears into and had told everybody who would listen were going to be the next big thing and they just didn't sell and I felt it deep in my bones. You can wallow for a little while and then you can't let them take up residence in your head because that's when you become afraid to take new risks and to try again. Like they say you have to get back on the horse. If you let yourself get too embroiled in the idea of having messed up or not being perfect or failed at something – Your world is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and you're going to lose confidence and you're just you're never going to try anything interesting again and you're never going to have a success like you can't succeed if you don't try. So you can't let failure prevent you from trying at all.
0: And you talk a lot in the book about being honest with yourself How would you advise somebody, they know they have room for improvement, they're doing some things right, but something feels off, they don't feel like they're a successful adult yet, how can they do a life inventory to know more about themselves and account for any shortcomings? I'm a big
1: fan of like a two-step method, a three-step method. And I have this little exercise in the book called How, Why, What? And it's meant to help you kind of assess your level of self-awareness when, particularly when you're feeling bad. You're like, well, I'm upset. Okay. Let's get a little bit more specific. Are you feeling rejected? Are you feeling underappreciated? Are you feeling angry? So how am I feeling? And then why? Why am I feeling that way? Is it because my best friend said something that I just can't really believe she said that and I've been thinking about it for the last three days? I feel incredibly undervalued by her. Is it I'm angry because I feel like my parents are not supportive of me? You know, how am I feeling? Why am I feeling that way? And then the most important question is, what am I going to do about it? And it doesn't help you to take a self-inventory if you don't also have a plan to do something with that inventory. There's no point in taking inventory if the inventory doesn't mean something. Yeah,
0: because then you're just like berating yourself and not doing the positive thing on the other side of it.
1: Like trying to change your state and improve it and improve your circumstances and maybe shift, you know, like if you realize that you're feeling a particular way and you know why you're feeling it and you're like, wow, like there is nothing I can do about this. If the answer to what can I do about it is I have no control over this situation, that's a whole other bag of tricks, which I talk about in my book, Calm the Fuck Down, where you have to learn to acknowledge the things that you can't control and just stop worrying about them and start focusing on the things that you can
0: I have to ask you this question because I don't think we ever talked about it on the podcast. But I remember you talking about the things that you decided to not give a fuck about. And one of them was being a morning person, which I have long thought that there was an incredible bias toward morning people in our society. And thought it was unfair. And when you said this, you freed me. So will you share a little bit about how you've decided to not give a fuck about being a morning person? Because I do think that is one of the joys of adulthood and the path you've chosen in particular is you can choose that.
1: I'm so glad that you feel this way because I definitely feel attacked on a regular basis by morning people. And I do feel like it's not just morning people that are very self-satisfied with their morning peopleness, but it's like you said, society appears to reward this. Like it's a badge of honor or it means that they're more serious or they're more dedicated or productive or something. And this goes all the way back to me kind of wanting more autonomy in my working life and being able to like... Do my best work and particularly my best creative work, I am no good before 11 o'clock in the morning. You can give me a 7 a.m. alarm, all you want. For 15 years, I can wake up at 7 a.m. and I can drink coffee and take a shower and put on makeup and get on the subway and go to work. And I am not going to do any good work before 11. So for me, it has been incredibly liberating to have this freelance lifestyle where my gift to myself, literally every day, my gift is to not set an alarm. I mean, the only time I would set an alarm is if I had like a flight that I had to catch or if I had to do something work-related that I couldn't, like, I always say, can we do it in the afternoon? Can we do it in the evening? If it's something really important, I'm obviously going to get up, like, if the Today Show comes calling, like, okay, like, (laughs) I will make sure that I am zesty as a motherfucker. (laughs) But it was like, I had to stop caring or thinking that other people were looking down on me for wanting to sleep Mm. longer and later. And like, This has been my entire life. I mean, like I said, I was a type A overachiever. I was valedictorian of my high school class. I went to an Ivy League college and my poor mother had to drag me out of bed three or four days a week. Like just she would have to come upstairs. My alarm had been going off. Snooze, snooze, snooze. I just did not want to get out of bed. And it wasn't because I didn't like school. It wasn't because I wasn't good at it. I just hate getting up in the morning. (laughs) Well, hearing you say it was the most
0: freeing thing in the world to me because you are so smart. You're so organized. You always do what you say you're going to do. And I have my whole life felt shamed that I don't just spring out of bed at 7 a.m. every day and be like, I'm ready. (laughs) And so to hear you, someone who's such a high achiever, say it, I cannot tell you the way it freed me and the way I'm like, I can't wait until the day when I can do exactly what Sarah's doing and not set a meeting
1: before 11 a.m., because i want to. Yeah, i highly recommend it if possible. And you know, i actually kind of succeeded in doing this at least my senior year of college. I just didn't sign up for classes that met in the morning. Like yeah. i, you know, i was to the point where i had the various courses that i had to take to fulfill my requirements and and i was like, well, i'll just find ones that fit the requirement that don't meet before 11. Like I have the power to choose that, so I'm going to choose it. And I did. And I was like, "Well, this is great." I also did not choose classes that met on Fridays, so I always had a 3-day weekend.
0: There she is. So, I just love how supportive you and your husband are of each other. I mean, it's clear that you have an incredible partnership. You are creative allies for each other in every way, and I love that. And speaking of which, I hear he has a new song coming out. He's an incredible musician. He has a new song coming out this May. Can you tell me a little bit about it?
1: Yes, I sure can. The song is called Take Me Down, and it is the first song to be released on what he's calling the Beach EP. Take Me Down is going live on all platforms on May 15th, and my husband's name is Judd Harris, and this is his first solo recording endeavor. He's had bands here in the Dominican Republic where we've been living for seven years. He had bands in New York City where we lived for 15 years before that. But this is his first solo music coming out under his own name. And Take Me Down is a song about escaping to the beach. And he and I know a little something about escaping to the beach. So, okay,
0: I can't wait to listen. And
1: yay, Judd, for going out on his own. I'm so proud of him. Hell yeah. It has been a- journey but you know if the pandemic was good for anything he couldn't play out live anymore and he just really focused on getting better and better at guitar and writing more and more songs he did a 30 songs in 30 days project where he wrote a complete song every single day for a month and out of that kind of body of work they really floated to the top some bangers hell yeah so he's been he's been working really hard on perfecting those and getting them professionally produced and all of that stuff and it's all coming to a head with the BGP and Take Me Down. Take me down. Can't wait to listen.
0: Sarah, I had like five pages of questions for you. So we obviously aren't going to get to all of those. But like needless to say, go pick up this book, You Listening. It is so valuable. All Sarah's books are. You have, as you said, you've written seven in the past seven years. So there is a beautiful library out there to help you get yourself together. I just love how actionable your advice is. So many people give advice and you can't enact it into your life the same day. What I love about your advice is you can put it into your life day of and start instantly making your life better. And it's so achievable. So I have a final question for you. If you could go back and you in that version of yourself who had just gotten laid off from the comedy writing company, if you were standing in the same room as her and you two were looking at each other, what do you think she would say to you now and why? I think that she would be like, holy
1: shit, look at you. (laughs) Like, you're telling me you what? you went on to have what career? You live where? That guy's your husband? Like, I mean, I think that that girl would be blown away. And when I was 21 years old and working in that job, I thought I was hot shit. You know, I was like, I've made it. And this is kind of like a cliche thing to do to be like back in my day, you know, but it's true that with another couple of decades of experience comes a really whole lot of perspective about how things can change, largely for the better. And I think that that 21-year-old would have just been totally blown away.
0: And what would you say to her and why?
1: I would say, trust your gut. Like, that's something that I think that people are not told often enough and that if they are told it, they don't take it to heart. And everything that I've done in my life personally and professionally in the last 20-plus years that was the result of me trusting my gut has worked out really fucking well. And the few things that I did against my own instinct did not work out really well. So I think that I would advise her to not get kind of sucked in by the peer pressure and by what she thinks other people think is the right move and just really trust her instincts because they're good.
0: Beautiful advice to leave on. Trust your gut, my beautiful listener. And Sarah, I'm so grateful for you being here. Thank you for all you put out into the world and for sharing your incredible story and your badass tips. You're the best.
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guest, Sarah Knight. For more info on Sarah, follow her at Sarah Knight author and get her book, grow the fuck up on her website, Sarah or wherever you get books and check out her podcasts. No fucks given podcast, wherever you get your pods. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping me edit this episode. Follow her at Rachel M Fulton. Thanks to Liz full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz full. And again, thank you if you like what you heard today remember to rate review and follow the show on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts share the show with a friend and post about it on social media tag me at lauren Legrasso and at unleash your inner creative, and i will repost to share my gratitude also tag the guests at sarah knight author so she can share as well my wish for you this week is that you start building the courage and making plans to take creative chances on yourself Through life, things go up and down, but we'll never fully know what we're made of unless we take those huge and risky leaps. Most of the time, those leaps can turn into a beautiful path for us. For Sarah, it turned into multiple New York Times bestselling books. I wonder what it could be for you. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.